Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and as Josh can tell you, when I charge for sex, it's a lot more than $300. You know, <laughs> I, even after all this time, you still surprise me with what, what element of the film you are going to relate to your life, and that is not the one I would have imagined that you would pick. I was thinking you would give some sort of uh, very precise speech about fate or something. Oh, that would have no, been fun to you do. You went with that. Yeah, Hard-boiled, yeah. like, you know, there are certain things I can help you with, certain things I can't. This is one of those things I can't help you with. You got yourself in this situation. You're going to have to get yourself out of it. That would have been fun, too. Yeah, no, but but I I think, you know, uh, commit to the whole uh, amount that you charge for sex because you should respect yourself. Yeah, you know, my body is my business, yes. according to this podcast. So That is so true. <laughs> so uh, this is our special 10th season of Awesome Movie Year. And it's sort of it's not really an anniversary because it, it's not uh, 10 years, but it's 10 seasons. And so we have been looking back at all of the years that we've covered in previous seasons, uh, one episode on each of those years to take a look at a film that we didn't cover, but we had hoped to cover. And so for this episode, we are looking back to our season on the films of 1996 and to the first feature episode. Uh, in the actual season, we talked about Wes Anderson and his film Bottle Rocket. And now we are going to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson and his debut film, Hard Eight. And uh, Awesome Anderson Year will be our new podcast mm. coming soon. Mm. Well, <laughs> what other Andersons will you add to that, Josh? We could talk about Paul W.S. Anderson. Yeah. You know? Sure. Uh, and then that's all I got. Famed uh, Hall of Fame wrestler Arn Anderson. Maybe he can make an appearance. I mean, I was thinking of filmmakers, but sure, why not? We can just, we can just <laughs> anyone with the last name so Anderson. Anybody, really? Or, and then that—that'll make it wide open. Yeah. There's a lot of people. We just did the Matrix and talked about Mister Anderson. So that's um, true. This was so. a bad mm -hmm. idea, Josh. You're awesome, Anderson. No, here. it's definitely nearly as nearly as good as uh, Feel the Burns. Our Ed Burns. Feel the life. Burns coming soon, where Josh and I. Uh, cover every Ed Burns film chronologically. I've seen many. He hasn't seen any, and we're going to go through them all. Write in, tweet us, let us know you want us to do Feel the Burns. That's not happening. So let's talk about Hard Eight, however, which was Paul Thomas Anderson's first film. And it was based uh, partly on his short film from 1993 called Cigarettes and Coffee which played a lot of film festivals and was a big sensation and got him the attention of the Sundance Institute. And that was where he was able to develop this film further. Uh, Philip Baker Hall is in the short film playing basically the same character. Jason, I don't know. Did you watch uh, the short? I did. It was fine. It's not great, but it's pretty good. It like shows the promise. You know, uh, who's the guy who played opposite him in there? Kirk Waltz, I think is his he was name. he was good in the film, you know. I thought those yeah, two. Yeah, he good. was all right. I mean, he's no John C. Riley. No, but, but uh, that's a high expectation to live up to, you know. Right. I mean, for a right. short film, if you saw this at a festival, you'd be like, hey, that's pretty good. And it's got Philip Baker Hall and Miguel Ferrer. Yeah, no, that's that's true. It definitely feels kind of short film festival-y. Um, and you can tell that he 
certainly progressed further as a filmmaker just in those next few years before making this film. But it's it's definitely an interesting piece to watch as sort of background to see where this one came from. So appropriately, given the support from Sundance, uh, Hard Eight premiered at the 1996 Sundance Film Festival. Uh, and it also played at the Cannes Film Festival in 1996 before getting a larger release in theaters in the U.S. in February of 1997. It was not a hit. Uh, it grossed about $222,000 on its budget of $3 million. But it was pretty well regarded and obviously set up Paul Thomas Anderson for quite a career. Uh, it was nominated for five Independent Spirit Awards for Best First Feature, uh, Best Cinematography for Robert Elswit, Best Male Lead for Philip Baker Hall, Best Supporting Male for Samuel L. Jackson, and Best First Screenplay for Paul Thomas Anderson. It did not win any of those awards, but that's a pretty solid show. Yeah. Five, five nominations. Duval, Robert Duvall won uh, Best Male Lead for uh, The Apostle that year, so no shame in that. But it's interesting that they would leave John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow out of those nominations. They're so, I mean, everyone's great in this movie, but I don't know how you separate those two from the other two. Yeah, I agree. I mean, especially, I think, to pick Samuel L. Jackson, I mean, as great as he, of course, is, but to pick him as the supporting nominee instead of John C. Riley, I feel like that's a, that's a weird choice. I mean, Philip Baker Hall really, this is his movie and he's just fantastic in this. So I feel like to pick him out, over those other actors makes sense. Um, but to pick one of the supporting performers, it does, yeah, it does seem a little arbitrary. Josh, sorry to jump in, but I wanted to jump back to where you were talking about how little money it made. It was Reicher, which is a TV company that uh, was moving into film distribution. And I think they went bankrupt or just basically stopped distributing films. So like you said, it was completed in 96. It got out a little in 97. I don't think it got those Spirit Awards till 98. It was a whole rigmarole. Right. I mean, I don't think this is a movie where it was like rejected by audiences. It, it's, a, it's one of these that maybe just didn't get to audiences. And I'm sure, you know, as we talked a lot about, I think when we did our season in 1996, a movie that got an audience later on home video, not only because Paul Thomas Anderson went on to become this very successful, famous filmmaker, but just in general, I can see, you know, people walking through Blockbuster and look, hey, there's Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, who was a huge star. I don't know that movie. Let me check that one out because I watched Shakespeare in Love or something like that. Yeah. And then, and, and then as we've discussed before, when we were, you know, reading Premiere Magazine and all these things in the 90s, and this was like, Hey, you probably missed this, but you should go check it out. This would definitely be one of those movies. Absolutely. Yeah, this would have been on, on, on a list like that. Um, and again, critics were very positive over this one and certainly would have, you know, led a, a charge to recommend this movie further as it came out on home video. Um, it got two thumbs up enthusiastically from Siskel and Ebert on an episode in which uh, they give 10 thumbs up to every single movie they talk about, including Booty Call. So uh, it, it caught them in a very good mood. Where did those thumbs um, end up for Booty Call? <laughs> yeah, we don't want to know about that, but thanks. Why didn't we cover Booty Call on this season? I think we'll get to it eventually. I mean, it seems inevitable, right? How can you not talk about Booty Call? I usually do, but it's late at night. There you go. Mm. So Roger Ebert in his review said, 
There turns out to be kind of a plot. There is even a secret from the past, although not the one we expect. But the movie isn't about a plot. It's about these specific people in this place and time, and that's why it's so good. It listens and sees. It observes, and in that it takes its lead from Sydney, who is a student of human nature and plays the cards of life very, very close to his vest. Movies like Heart Eight remind me of what original, compelling characters the movies can sometimes give us. Like David Mamet's House of Games or Mike Figgis's Leaving Las Vegas or the documentary Crumb, they pay attention to the people who inhabit city nights according to their own rules, who have learned from experience and don't like to make the same mistake twice. Uh, and Sydney that he's referring to in there is Philip Baker Hall's character, the veteran gambler. And uh, of course, we did a whole episode on Crom, and I don't know that that's the first thing I would have thought of when uh, when referencing this film. But I can see certainly leaving Las Vegas is an obvious comparison here, and uh, and maybe House of Games. I did see uh, comparisons to David Mamet in terms of the dialogue in a couple other reviews as well. You know, the two that I thought of, and maybe because they're related to this podcast, were two of your former picks. Your 1967 pick with our friend. Lee Marvin. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to say what that pick was or no? Oh, I thought uh, you were going to continue your your great impression. Um, no, it was uh, it was Point Blank. I don't. I feel like Point Blank is a lot more crime violence-y That not that this movie doesn't eventually have violence, but that doesn't really well, seem like the point of it. I guess so. And then I, in '77, when you had picked the 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 Late Show, it just seems like yeah. these kind of hard boiled like. Uh, like Ebert said, learning from your experience type things and, you know, guys who play it close to the vest. Um, I guess it seems like your type of movie is what I'm saying. I mean, it is definitely my type of movie. I, I like this film. And, and when, we, we were, when we were planning this season, I definitely was arguing in favor of covering this film. Obviously, I, Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't need, you know, my support. I mean, plenty, plenty of people... Uh, <laughs> Uh, love Paul Th- Thomas Anderson's films, but um, it is my kind of film. I definitely enjoy this film a lot, um, even above some of his other more well-known films. And and I can't stand David Mamet, so um, I feel like the dialogue here is like, yes, it's stylized, especially some of those speeches as we were referencing earlier that Sidney gives, but it felt more real and honest and natural to me than David Mamet films ever do. I, I also, well, I mean, I think that also may be um, spurring from the short film, you know, where it's like, we're going to have our coffee and cigarettes and then we'll talk. Well, why can't we talk before our coffee and cigarettes? Because coffee and cigarettes is, you know, an oath or a habit or whatever it is, a ritual, you know, that right. kind of repetition, which you see some of here, but that's fine. Also, this, uh, the movie was originally called Sydney. And um, the distributor made him change it to Hard Eight, which he agreed to as long as he would get his final cut because he did not like the studio cut. Yeah, I don't know what the studio cut was like, but that seems like a very good compromise, especially because Hard Eight is a better title anyway. Yeah. Also, though, Anderson's first cut was like two and a half hours. So that's when they took it from him and were like, hey, dude, no. Yeah. And and I, I agree. <laughs> Whatever the compromises were that were made, I feel like we ended up with the right film with the right title. So that's uh, that's a very good thing. Owen Gleiberman in Entertainment Weekly said, gamblers live for the moment, for the next bet, the one that will take them over the top. 
And this gilt-edged noir contraption is an enjoyable wallow in life-is-a-craps-table existentialism. Played with a riveting poker face by Philip Baker Hall, the Richard Nixon of Robert Altman's Secret Honor, Sidney hovers over the action like a pouchy-eyed Mephistopheles, all-seeing, all-controlling, all-mysterious. Writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson crafts a plot of manipulation and chance, in which some zigs and zags are more convincing than others. Still, his feel for scuzz, for people living at the raw extremes of appetite, is palpable. Part 8 invites you to share in the gambler's highs, but it also knows they're illusory. Even when you win, you're alone. And I don't know if comparing Sidney to Mephistopheles is really right. I mean, he's not a villain. He's not evil, right? He's like a good guy, despite some things. So far, you don't like any of the comparisons. What about uh, Heraclitus? Would you compare him to Heraclitus? Or... You're just naming <laughs> old time sounding things. Is that I don't even know who that is. Honestly, Greek. He's, I think he said. I think he said uh, you can never stand in the same river twice. Okay. Which, uh, which kind of you yeah, can that could fit. Yeah, that could pretty much fit. Anything, I mean, more though. than <laughs> more than being like the devil. I think. Yeah. Uh, whatever, you know, you, you reviewers in your flowery language, like whatever. (laughs) Okay. That's your response to that. No, I mean, he had nothing to say about like, yes, he saw a lot of things and then it took a twist on him and he had to react to the twist on him. Right. You know, it's, uh, I mean, again, why are we, um, overanalyzing? It's just a good, simple, slow burner. This is you a podcast that. where we analyze films, so I feel like that's not an unreasonable thing to do. All right. Well, I mean, I'm saying that that uh, that review was overanalyzation. All right. right. Fair enough. I mean, but no. I, I mean, in the, in the end, this is a character study. Yes. And it's a character study about really three or four different characters, and that's what makes it work. So that that kind of change in the middle is uh, effective because we have gotten to know the characters and their relationships at this point. I, I agree with you there. I, I just, yeah, I felt like his comparison, I don't think it was overanalyzing necessarily. I just thought that one particular comparison was was inaccurate and maybe misses the point that uh, he's not, Sidney is not evil. He's not, even if he's manipulating situations, he's doing it for the sake of of sort of personal atonement is what it seemed like to me, um, you know, which is the opposite of what uh, Satan would want, really. Right. Well, I mean, and we don't know all of his past. We know. Can we spoil this now? I guess if you haven't seen it, watch the movie. Uh, Sydney's relationship with John stems from the fact that he killed John's father in Atlantic City. He shot him in the face, basically. Uh, from what we can gather, he was like an old time, you know, kind of tough guy. And John's father owed money, didn't pay. That's what I got out of it. So he had to kill him. And uh, he feels guilty and he creates this really um, parental relationship with John now. Yeah, I mean, and I think more than that specifically, his whole demeanor and everything that he does and the way that he responds when Jimmy, the Samuel L. Jackson character, uh, confronts him with his past, to me, shows that he's trying to atone or become a better person for everything that he did at that time, stuff that we don't specifically hear about. I mean, if he killed John's father, Probably he killed other people. Probably he did other bad stuff. And he's trying to become a better person, whether that's through helping John or through helping Clementine, the Gwyneth Paltrow character, or just being this kind of upstanding guy. 
that that's his motivation now at this point in his life. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, obviously, everything he does is uh, with John and Clementine is to help them. But I think, like you said, that's to atone. Maybe maybe he's just out of that life. Maybe it was, uh, you know, not the easiest lifestyle to live. Always, you know, having to do things in the dark and he's just trying to move past that. But I don't know if that whole thing is because he wants to become a better person or just because he's old and tired. Well, maybe better person is too, but he's definitely, I think, trying to atone or trying to make up for what he did. Maybe he can't ever really be a better person, but he's trying to make some amends in, in, in his own way. Certainly with, with John, yes. Yes, yes. So uh, Stephen Holden in the New York Times said, as Hard Eight tracks the mentor-protege relationship that Sidney cultivates with a gravity befitting Rod Serling introducing the Twilight Zone, the movie smells like one of David Mamet's fiendish stories of grifters embroiled in tricky games of cat and mouse. But Paul Thomas Anderson, who wrote and directed the movie, which is his first feature film, has other things on his mind. Sidney's motives aren't revealed until the film is almost over. Let it suffice to say that they have to do with guilt and with a warped, grandiose sense of honor. One of the many strengths of this beautifully controlled, slow-moving film is that the revelations come as a complete surprise at the same time that they make psychological sense. So there's another little take on what, what motivates Sidney to do what he does. Yeah, I mean, what, what I agree with there is kind of echoed in that, like, everything that comes, comes from a logical standpoint, and we're invested in it because we're invested in the characters at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were some things... Not not that particularly the the sort of revelation about Sidney's background and what he did, but there there were you know little moments here where I was like I'm not sure I entirely understand the motivations, um, but overall I think this is a is a very effective character study and you you do get to know these characters really well over the course of the film, and that is a great strength of of Paul Thomas Anderson's writing and directing, but also the actors all of whom are are really really good as we've said. Do you have an example of one of those moments that didn't work for you? I mean, I felt like the the sort of central, you know, the 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 big uh, event that sort of turns the plot in the middle of the movie when uh, Clementine is uh, stiffed or whatever, stood up by this uh, John who won't pay her for her services, and uh, she calls calls John to help her and he goes to this hotel room and they you know knock the guy out and they call his wife to threaten her so that they can get their money um the idea of clementine leaving you know she's in a bar with john like right after they've gotten spon they spontaneously decided to get married right and 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 the movie i think sells you on the idea that they're genuinely in love even though they've essentially just gotten to know each other, that there's this real connection between them and they really feel it. And so yet immediately she just wanders off to, uh, you know, have sex for money with this guy. And I know it's sort of like, oh, that's just what she does. And it's, you know, it's ingrained in her because it's a habit or whatever. But I just felt like that was a little, I didn't entirely buy that. And then what comes after that the idea that they would be fixated on this relatively small amount of money and that they would uh, commit these really ill-advised acts to get the money because neither of them are super smart people as opposed to Sydney. I could go with that, but that initial thing that she does, I just didn't quite buy. Fair. Oh, thank you. Yeah. All right. 
I thought you were going to yeah. mount a counter argument there. But. No, I mean, I think you you laid out a fair point and you laid out why it does work and why it didn't work for you. So I have to give you your due, Josh. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So I meticulously thought this out like Sydney himself. Right. You you have. You are much <laughs> like him in your, your planning of all your actions. Um, so, so, Jason, did you see this movie maybe uh, when working at Blockbuster? I think that is exactly when I saw it. Uh, again, knew about it. Might have known about it simply from that Ebert and uh, Siskel and Ebert review. Like, hey, you got to check this thing out. And uh, obviously, Boogie Nights was a huge deal to us uh, indie nerds when it came out. So um, I think I probably saw Boogie Nights and then even maybe Magnolia and got back to this one at some point. Yeah, I saw it a little later than that. Uh, I definitely had seen Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And it might have even been further after Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood. And I don't remember exactly, but it was it was later on that I kind of went back and caught up with it. And I want to say it probably was at least after There Will Be Blood, because that was when I was like, maybe I'm not really that into Paul Thomas Anderson between that one and The Master. And going back to this, I was like, oh, wow, this is really, really good. And, you know, made me sort of remember why I liked Boogie Nights and Magnolia so much, which I haven't seen in a really long time. So, yeah, and I've actually seen this movie three times now because uh, last year I wrote a article on Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, 90s films and how great and underrated her acting is in that period. And so I watched this movie for that. And uh, and then, of course, again, for this podcast. So I think it holds up really well. I think it's one of his best movies. And it's impressive that he made such a a really strong movie right uh, in his first try. Yeah. Uh, glad you brought up Gwyneth. She's great. She, I mean, like we said, they're all great. But like she really she really just was hitting a lot of home runs back then. Yeah, no, I mean, that was kind of the point of what I was writing at the time um, between this and uh, Emma and the talented Mr. Ripley, Sliding Doors, uh, Shakespeare in Love, which, of course, she won an Oscar for, um, the uh, Alfonso Cuaron Great Expectations, which I think is just an underrated movie in general. Um, lots of really, really, really good performances from her. And I think people tend to forget about that because she's so annoying now. Well, yeah, once you bring out the vagina scented candles, that's tough. Uh, that's usually the headline, Josh. Yeah, and I'm not going to defend that <laughs> stuff, certainly. But I think as an actor in the 90s, she really uh, is, 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 is very, very impressive. So. How about you, Dave? When was the first time you saw this one? Last night. Wow. Um, wow. I, I've always wanted to. This is one of those uh, rainy day movies for me. Like, I'm going to finally get to it. And uh, now I've watched it and it was great. Well, I'm glad it you know lived up to it. After I know Dave, you're you're a big PT Anderson fan, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you watched the short too, right? You really uh, did I did research for this one. I really liked the short as well. I I thought it was great, and you know, especially for you know such an early short for somebody like that to like really just have everything on display. You know, it's 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 really good. Yeah, it's a shame that I mean we all watched it. I think it's like a I don't know where exactly it came from, but it's clearly like. A, VHS rip that you can watch on YouTube. And sure. It seems like this is a movie that deserves a big, nice home video, you know, Criterion Collection release or whatever, and that they could maybe remaster the short to put on there as well. Because, I mean, is, Paul Thomas Anderson is, if anyone is going to get a fancy, uh, you know, spotlight on a label for movie snobs, it's going to be Paul Thomas Anderson. Sure. So uh, anything else on the background for this film you want to mention, Jason? Kind of a little fun Easter egg if you're into the P.T. Anderson films. Like 
Dave is uh, when Jimmy confronts Sydney, he says, I'm from back east. I know the same guys you know. I know Floyd Gondola. I know, you know, uh, Jimmy Gator. And in the next two movies, that the characters that uh, Philip Baker Hall played were Floyd Gondola and Jimmy Gator. Yeah. Interesting. That's cool. I like that. that. Little little cinematic universe, or maybe not. If he's, it's they're they're all just like they're like triplets or something. They all look like Philip Baker Hall. I mean, <laughs> I, I I don't think you know because I mean at least in uh I mean I could see the the Boogie Nights character, but I don't think that the beloved daytime talk show host Jimmy Gator would be the one giving the gossip on uh, Sydney. Yeah, probably not. But that's <laughs> you know so still a nice little fun thing to spot. So. uh we will come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Hard 8. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special 10th anniversary, not really anniversary, retrospective season thingy, we are talking about Paul Thomas Anderson's Hard 8 from 1996. And uh, I think we all liked it, which is nice. It's it's impressive that this is his debut. I mean, this is, you know, we've done this in every season talking about debut films. And I mean, in some cases, you can look at the films and say, all right, you know, there this is rough, but we can see how this is going to blossom into a really impressive career. And that's not to say that everything in this film is perfect, but I think there's a lot of uh, really confident um you know, successful filmmaking going on here. That's, that's more than just a debut. So, uh, Jason, did you feel that way? Yeah, I think, uh, you definitely see some of that in those, uh, Scorsese style, Goodfellas, you know, tracking shots that go all the way through the casino or follow, you know, Philip Baker hall on these long walks. Um, there's a lot of pieces that have to be connecting to make that shot. Right. And he does, he does it a few times. But really what you are getting here is the beginning of that P.T. Anderson repertory theater, right? With uh, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley, And, you know, that's kind of what we loved about him in the beginning was he was using all these great actors and even Philip Seymour Hoffman's in this one, too, in ways that other people weren't using them. He realized they're great characters and he was going to write great characters for him. Yeah. A lot of what I saw like in reviews too, for this is people talking about Philip Baker Hall, who, I mean, had been working steadily for 20 years at this point, but hadn't really had that kind of spotlight other than that Robert Altman movie that, that, uh, multiple reviews mentioned secret honor where he plays Richard Nixon, which I've never seen. Um, but other than that, he hadn't really gotten these lead roles and yeah, you're right that, that, Paul Thomas Anderson sees his potential and sees this guy should and could carry a movie. Um, and obviously they must have worked well together. I mean, Philip Baker Hall in that short film with a filmmaker who's obviously certainly at that point, like not anybody, Hey, I'll be in your little short film kid. And then goes on to be the star of this big feature. So I, I think you're right, whether it's him or John C. Riley. Um, even, even Gwyneth Paltrow, who, as we, you know, uh, mentioned can be a bit, uh, I think she's great in the nineties, but certainly as we see later, she's kind of, uh, in her own little world maybe. And, you know, he can bring something out of her. So yeah, very impressive. I thought so. This was a really vulnerable performance from her, you know, and showed just, um, how emotionally resonant she can be. 
John C. Riley, I mean, this is basically the movie that broke him, if not, you know, the first one where he was discovered. So, um, and you see all types of growth from him and a lot of fun collaborations with Anderson over the years. But um, it's interesting because in that short film, the character playing across Sydney was like a much tougher, uh, more ready for the streets type of guy. And then John C. Riley plays John as this innocent or naive, I should say, not innocent uh, guy who is always in over his head and um, just has such reverence and looks up to Sydney in such a way that it's tough to like. I don't know how you couldn't like John, the character, because he's so puppy dogish. He is. I mean, I think, again, there's a line there between him being puppy dogish and naive and likable and him just being dumb. And I think there are certain moments, especially in the scenario with the guy that they kidnap in the hotel room where you're just like, you're just stupid. And well, like, he can still be likable, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's again, that's in, him in over his head as opposed yeah. to when he is just Sydney's protege and doing the things that he's telling him to do. And you see him ascend up the scale of a, you know, casino hustler type. Right. And, and I think even when we get that, so, you know, Sydney kind of picks him up. He's basically, he appears to be homeless. He's sitting outside this diner. Sydney picks him up, helps him out, shows him kind of uh, this little, I don't know if we call it a scam, but uh, a way to kind of work the casino. And uh, that's, that's sort of the beginning of his journey. And then we cut to two years later. And at that point, two years later, he's clearly, like you're saying, this casino hustler. He knows what he's doing. He knows all the angles. But even at that point, he's sort of like, he's just a reflection of Sydney. He knows all the angles because they're, this, they're Sydney's angles. Um, right. I'll have whatever he, whatever Sydney's drinking is. Right. You know? Exactly. Or he dresses similarly. Or even at one point later, I noticed that. Uh, when when they're at that motel with the with the kidnapped guy and they finally figure out what to do when they're all leaving, they drive the same car. And that's not something yeah. that's even been mentioned, but you can see it there. So it, it's it's almost like, you know, he's this this hustler, which you think of as someone who's savvy and sophisticated and figures has figured things out. But really, it's just he's emulating everything that Sydney does. And he he doesn't necessarily figure anything out on his own. I think that's an interesting character layer. And we haven't seen up until that point, we have never seen him commit any type of crime. So everything he's doing might just be on the level as a gambler, other than what we saw him do to the first casino, which who cares? Screw the casino. Right. I mean, it's not necessarily a crime. <laughs> it's just kind of like a deception of some kind. But I wouldn't know. I don't think it's illegal. Per, per no. Se. And Josh, this was shot on location in Reno, correct? That it was. Yeah. The whole thing is in Reno. There's a. There's a moment in the in the beginning of the movie when Sydney is first teaching him that particular uh, scheme. They're supposed to be in Vegas, but I think everything was shot in Reno, at least according to the credits. So, uh, hooray for Nevada! I like I like Reno. I was there this summer or last summer, and um, I think this works way better in that kind of biggest little city than you know biggest big city type thing. You know, there's a difference between a, being a shark in Reno, being a shark in Vegas, right? So, right. Um, and Sydney ends up in uh, Reno from Atlantic City, and obviously he had done some time in Vegas, as they say. So, it's an interesting setting, and I think he utilizes it really well. Yeah, I agree, and I think, I mean, no, no disrespect to Reno, but it definitely is 
always in the shadow of Vegas is kind of the, the smaller scale version of that. But I think it very much works in that these are these kind of small time hustlers and that's where they are. They're in Reno. They're not in Vegas, you know, even if they've been to Vegas sometimes. So um, I definitely like that about it. One one review I was looking and trying to find uh, maybe a negative review that had something interesting to say. And I, I didn't end up using it because I felt like it was completely misguided and got some facts wrong. But it complained about exactly what we're talking about. The idea that Reno is like too small time. And that's why are the characters there? Why aren't they in Vegas? And it's like you really missed the point of the setting, yeah. I think, if you're complaining about that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when Jimmy, you know, extorts um, Sydney, you know, he says, I want $10,000. And Sydney says, I have $6,000. That's what I have, you know, which is a callback to how much John needed in the beginning to uh, bury his mother. Right. And he says, I have $6,000. And he gives it to him. And Sydney goes on one of his big speeches. And, you know, I expect this will, will go our separate ways after this. But $6,000 is nothing to sneeze at. You know, we'd all like $6,000, but at the same time for a guy who has earned such reverence from everyone and dressed as like such a player, $6,000 really isn't much. Right. No, I think that's true. And I think that also emphasizes again, the sort of that these are, are kind of small time players and they, they get by, you know, they get free rooms and they get comped meals and they make enough from their gambling that they can kind of keep going but they're not high rollers even in you know in the in the beginning when sydney is teaching john that that scheme and the point of it is to get comped a room to appear like you have more money than you really do and he gets comped this room and it's fine but it's not like a fancy hotel room or anything in any way um and even and then later on you know when we cut to the 2 years later and they have a what is clearly a much nicer hotel room, and it's got you know multiple rooms to it. It's a big suite or whatever. Uh, you know, John is still showing off to Clementine how he can get uh, free pay per view movies by you know switching the wire into his extremely small TV, which I thought was also <laughs> a good detail that like the little portable TV that he's carrying around in 1996 has a screen that's probably about the size of a cell phone screen now. And it's like, do you really want to watch movies on that even for free? But whatever. It was a good scheme. But, um, you know, they're schemers, but they're workmen schemers, right? Like these aren't big time scores. You know, whenever they separate, Sydney says something like, I'll be at the sports book or I'll be at this table, right? He's always working. He's in the coffee shop looking over numbers or this and that. So it's the life they chose. It's the job they chose. And they have to work hard to make it happen. So what did you think of after, you know, we've kind of talked about the trouble that John and Clementine get into. Sydney kind of helps them take care of it. They end up on the run. And then Jimmy kind of extorts Sydney. What did you think of uh, where the story went from there? Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I, you know, even if, like I said, the the motivation for Clementine to end up in that situation in the first place, I wasn't sure that I entirely bought. But I like the way that it played out. And I think it's, you know, it's an emphasis of how much Sydney cares about John and Clementine and how much he feels obligated. I mean, obviously, as we learn later, he killed John's father. He feels like this this duty to help John. But also it's genuine, you know, when he calls John later and he says he loves him, like that's believable. We think that that's true. He sees this guy as basically his son. So I like that. And I thought that that was another 
demonstration of his competence. You know, unlike the two of them who got in over their heads and clearly don't know what they're doing and made the wrong decision basically at every point, he's like, all right, I know what's, you know, I know what's going to happen here. I know who's maybe called the police and who hasn't and what kind of risk we can take and what kind of risk we can't take. And here's what you're going to do. This is where you're going to go. And, um, you know, he's really efficient. And then he's also ruthless. And I think we see that, you know, he's pragmatic. Like you said, Jimmy then blackmails him or extorts him and says, give me the $6,000. And he does. And it feels genuine when he's like, you know, this is all the money I have, but it's not worth it to me to die, to, you know, hold on to this money. Like I will give you the money because I want, I value my life. But then he goes back and he kills Jimmy and is very methodical about it, is very calculating about it and gets his money and moves on. And, you know, you can clearly see that as much as he, you know, loves John and Clementine and will do anything for them, even if they screw up in an, in an incredibly awful way, you know, on the other side, Jimmy's life is worth nothing to him. And it bothers him not one bit to kill Jimmy without a second thought. And he, I mean, you know, it's an interesting dynamic because he says that he doesn't like Jimmy, but he also underestimates Jimmy, you know, and Jimmy calls him on it. Like, you, what do you think? I only work, um, you know, security outside. No, I'm in the casino. I'm trusted, you know, and Jimmy kind of gets over on him. But then Jimmy lets his guard down after that. And that's where he gets to come up. And so it's it's interesting that in this world, you can really never let your guard down. Right. That's true. And I think that's something that Sydney, in his obviously long experience has learned and that maybe that was something that he didn't quite impart to John as effectively uh, as he could have. And maybe John will learn that lesson now, or maybe he won't because again, he's kind of dumb. You, you're really hammering that point home. John. I mean, it just, it seemed like, and John C. Riley is very good at playing like a likable dumb guy. So maybe that colored it as well that I've seen him do that before. I should really work on you. Hey, Sid. Hey, Sid. You know, just it's <laughs> good. Just here. Yeah, that's <laughs> that a pretty good. good one. I think you've done a good job there. It's better than your Lee Marvin. <laughs> I never tried it before. I'll have what uh, he's having. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's a pretty good job there. You could you can make that work. Well, Josh. Uh, I mean, to me, I think you know we've kind of covered it. We see the promise of. Anderson, we see this kind of really well thought out technique of uh, how he shoots scenes. And then you can also see budget wise, there are just times where he has to get the basic, basic coverage. Right. But you see those things where he's able to pull different things from actors and you can see why actors gravitate towards him because uh, he writes interesting characters. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, regardless to budget, I, I, I that was another thing that I saw mentioned in a couple of reviews. And I mean, sure, this is obviously not a big budget movie. But there were never any moments where I was watching and I was like, oh, that was something they clearly couldn't do because of the budget. Like, I felt like it was perfectly within its capabilities. It never felt like it was stretching too far or that it was constrained or anything. So I, I felt like he approached that exactly the right way. Cool. Should we rate this thing? Uh, well, I, you know, I, one more thing I just wanted to sort of weirdly bring up. Is this a Christmas movie? I was wondering that too with that ending music. Well, not, and not just the ending, the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 at, at the point when uh, when Sydney and uh, Clementine are having their conversation in in one of the cafes, 
Um, there's all like Silent Night and there's a whole Christmas medley playing in the background. And I hadn't noticed that the first time, but I, I guess is this maybe in, you know, in, in Reno, like here in Vegas, you know, a casino, it's always just no time and you don't know when it's a holiday. I think it's a Christmas movie. I think anything that takes place over that time period, like that would be a good article because everyone always argues is Die Hard a Christmas movie, right? Like before we got on, we were just talking about The Green Knight, which takes place at Christmas time of yore. That's a Christmas movie to me. It would be a good article, like 10 Christmas movies that you don't think are Christmas movies. Right, right. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. there are movies like I've, I've seen that referenced in, in, in terms of The Green Knight recently, but I don't think I'd ever seen anybody talking about this as a Christmas movie. But um, yeah, I think it might be. So do we want to rate this out of five uh, hard eight rolls, five rolls of the dice with a with an eight or something? I don't know. <laughs> it sounds very complicated. So that's fine. We can do something. Well, it's you know, it's a movie about complicated gambling schemes, but we can do something more uh, straightforward. What, what would you prefer, Jason? Five soft eights rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe five five <laughs> coffees and cigarettes, something like sure. that. There you go. Sh- sure. Five five combos of cigarettes and coffee uh, gets three and a half from me, Josh. Yeah, I'm going to give it a three and a half as well. But I think this is uh, is it really good? And even if there's small elements that don't come together for me overall, uh, I, if you if you like P.T. Anderson and you haven't seen this movie, you should absolutely see it. So, Dave. Three and a half for me as well. And yeah, it might actually go up on my next watch. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's very good one. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Hard Eight. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special retrospective season, we are talking about 1996 debut Hard Eight from Paul Thomas Anderson. And of course, we're talking about this as a notable debut because Paul Thomas Anderson has gone on to have an amazing career and is at this point one of the most acclaimed filmmakers in the US, in the world. Right after this film, his next movie was Boogie Nights, and that was really his huge breakthrough, putting him on that level with other major filmmakers. Um, Jason, you mentioned Martin Scorsese. I think especially with Boogie Nights, there were a lot of Scorsese comparisons and people seeing him as that the next Scorsese maybe. And I think his career has gone in different directions, which is great. Um, But that was really, uh, I think, how he was regarded. And he definitely has that feel of kind of those 70s auteurs, even as he's continued to make various different kinds of films. Yeah, I mean, obviously the story of when he was the director understudy or, you know, for Robert Altman when he did uh, Prairie Home Companion because insurance needed someone on set, like, he'd be a perfect guy because of all these ensemble kind of overlays that he goes through in um, most of his other movies right there. And I think his best movies are the ones that work them perfectly. You know, uh, Boogie Nights is a good example of that. Um, So yeah, no, I mean, you know, uh, with this movie, Josh, I was going to ask you, have you ever saw Jean-Pierre Melville's Bob de la Flambeur? I have seen Bob la Flambeur Mm -hmm. as well as the remake, The Good Thief, that Neil Jordan made, which I loved that movie. And that was actually why I watched Bob la Flambeur, because I loved The Good Thief so much. But both really good. Yeah, absolutely. So Anderson credits that movie here as a big influence. Did you see that in here? Uh, Maybe. I mean, it's been a little while since I saw Mm -hmm. that, but I can absolutely see that. And 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 an overall, I think that's maybe slightly pre- French New Wave, Melville was more of a New Wave influence than part of that. Right, right. But 
but yeah, I can definitely see that in there. I think you can see a lot of Robert Altman in here as well. Um, I mean, not just because Philip Baker Hall's most notable film role before this was in an Altman movie, but um, I think that more than Scorsese, especially as Anderson's career has gone on, he reminds me more of Altman. I, I agree, but you know, it, it's what we're getting to is like this is other than maybe Punch Drunk Love, which I really like. Um, this is the least sprawling of his films, I'd say. Yeah, and they all become you know kind of uh, with different types of results they they sprawl one way or the other right i mean i think licorice pizza his newest film it, it kind of gets back to a bit of that uh being self-contained as well i mean it, it's it's broader it's more sprawling than this um just because it's got more locations and and i'm certainly like a bigger budget but uh yeah i agree i feel like to me my least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson films are like these these big, heavy, epic dramas. I'm not really a fan of There Will Be Blood or The Master. Um, I like it when it's a bit more, you know, character driven, I guess I would say. Um, I don't like Punch Drunk Love just because I hate Adam Sandler, but I haven't seen that in a long time. And maybe I would be more amenable to it now. I don't know. The thing, you know, you mentioned The Master is my least favorite. The only one I haven't seen is Phantom Thread, but also he is funny he's got good humor so when you don't see it like i think you do get some of that in there will be blood and i could see why you didn't like it i of course did um yeah you know it's it's interesting licorice pizza was was a good movie and it had some of that whimsy that i think he had lost uh in more recent times yeah i'm i'm with you on the whimsy although i feel like inherent vice actually has a lot of whimsy to it but i know most people don't really like that one i just think like i think you and i were talking about it I know there's humor and fun, but I, but it doesn't make sense all the time, or I don't know if I'm <laughs> supposed to get it all the time, or whatever. Right. I mean, my feeling on that movie is that you're not supposed to, at a certain point, really understand what's going on because it's a movie about a character who doesn't understand what's going on. But I mean, I think that's a fair frustration to have with that film. Um, you know, people expect that you're going to be able to make sense of a movie, uh, especially one that presents a mystery, and it is frustrating when you cannot. Um, so Dave, do you have a favorite PT Anderson movie? It's so hard, especially with how much I loved licorice pizza, uh, to make a list of his movies. Cause they're all so different. Um, That's not I'd probably go there's to... only nine of them. <laughs> yeah. But they're, it's like, are you in the mood for this, for this, you know, his big epic ones his little bit lighter ones. You know, I'd probably go boogie nights though, as like just a simple answer. Yeah. It's a solid choice. So yeah. as Jason mentioned, Philip Baker Hall went on to work with P.T. Anderson, both in Boogie Nights and in Magnolia, even though he didn't become like a big star off of this, he works. The dude is 90 years old and still works constantly. Like, it's quite impressive. One of the great character actors of uh, our lifetime. And, you know, Josh, we got to shout out his work in uh, Seinfeld as the (laughs) library cop. Yes. One of the great guest starring roles. Uh, uh, You know, I'm watching Modern Family with my daughter. He plays like that crotchety neighbor. and everything but yeah movies like you know we've talked about say anything and truman show the insider zodiac which i know you love and then yeah he was just in that um uh messiah that that miniseries was the last thing or limited series was the last thing i think he did yeah that was a netflix series about jesus so uh but right but that was from 2020 so he is still i'm sure he's got other projects lined up it's it's quite impressive as you said, this was kind of a breakout for John C. Riley, and and he's done really an amazing job, John C. Riley, of balancing like 
really goofy comedic roles. You know, he works a lot with Will Ferrell, but he's also able to take on very serious roles and is completely believable and effective and successful in both modes. And I think that's really amazing. And he brings, you know, in this movie, uh, again, I keep harping on the idea that his character is dumb, but, you know, he brings that kind of goofy, dumb guy energy to it, but you still take the character seriously. Right. Um, he really is underrated, I think, with uh, his his range, everything. I mean, you know, he and Philip Seymour Hoffman were nominated uh, on Broadway for True West, where they would switch parts every other performance. And, you know, it's to be so good to do that, right? And obviously, we know him, like you said. Look, Will Ferrell made some of the funniest movies of the last 20 years. And to keep up with him is you got to be on your game, man. And I still love Step Brothers. Um, people really love Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, you know, which is his movie. And I think, you know, he can pretty much do what he wants now. Wreck-It Ralph probably secured his future forever, right? So uh, recently, Moonbase 8, Ultra City Smiths, and he will be in the... He's playing uh, Jerry Buss in Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers with Adam McKay, where he beat out Will Ferrell for the part. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. a whole part of the rift between McKay and Ferrell. But yeah, uh, Josh, I got to shout out one other thing from uh, John C. Riley. Do you know what it is? I, there's so many things. It's just, I don't know. You drangus. Let's check it out with Dr. Steve Brule, one of my favorite <laughs> Adult Swim shows, which I think you would hate. Yeah, no, I do hate uh, all that Tim and Eric stuff. But I mean, the fact that he can work in that world, in that weird adult swim, like anti-comedy world, and then work in the super mainstream comedy of Will Ferrell, and then be in like an indie drama, you know, like the the Sisters Brothers or something like that. I mean, to have that kind of range is 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 pretty amazing. And I was looking, his only Oscar nomination is for Chicago. Chicago. Of all things. Yeah. And this is like what we were talking about wow. Paul Giamatti. And like, what did Paul Giamatti get an Oscar for? Oh, Cinderella Man. Like of all the things that he's done, it was, I didn't even remember that he was in Chicago. I did because he sang cellophane, cellophane. I'm Mr. Cellophane. I I'm sure he was good, but I just, I, I don't know. That just seems sort of arbitrary that that was the one. Yeah. Well, Gwyneth Paltrow, we kind of talked about how good she is, obviously, as a Wes Anderson fan. I always remember her as Margot Tenenbaum on top of that. What a, and she's, you know, still in the Marvel universe uh, if she wants to be. What about the politician? That that show? Was that a show or a yeah. series that she just did? Yeah, it's a Netflix series. Yeah, she doesn't really act much anymore. I mean, even the last few Marvel things she did, it was just like a cameo that she was in one scene or something. And I did not watch that. Uh, that show was, uh, yeah, it's a Ryan Murphy production. And, and Brad Falchuk, who is Ryan Murphy's like producing partner is married to Gwyneth Paltrow now. And so it seemed like her being in that show was kind of like a favor to her husband more than a big acting project. Um, but I, I don't know. The, the show overall got very poor reviews. I'm not sure how her performance is in it, but she really doesn't seem all that interested in acting anymore. She's very focused on her goop uh, lifestyle company and all of this stuff that makes people hate her now and makes her come off as this entitled, out-of-touch rich person, um, that's really what she's all into now. But that was why I kind of wanted to, you know, focus on the idea. Like, she was a really good actor. And honestly, watching a lot of those movies of hers from the 90s, it made me think, like, it's not only a shame that she uh, 
uh, is creates this shitty, um, expensive stuff that no one needs. But like, she was a good actor and she could have had a really great acting career that she seems to not be interested in anymore. Sounds like you two have consciously uncoupled. I think that, <laughs> I think that we have. Um, and you mentioned Jason Philip Seymour Hoffman, who has a great like single scene uh, appearance in this film. Of course, he went on to be a big Paul Thomas Anderson collaborator, and and surely would still have been if he had not sadly you know passed away young. So, uh, but you can see that just in the one scene that he's in in this movie, his his really magnetic presence. But it's really cool that his son Cooper Hoffman is the star of Licorice Pizza and does a really good job. Yeah, he's great in that. And uh, and John C. Riley making a very, very, very brief appearance. Uh, right, as Herman Munster? As Herman Munster, or as, you know, <laughs> as Fred Gwynn, who played Herman Munster. But I think yeah. he has he has one line. But that was his, I think that's his first work with with Anderson since, uh, since Magnolia. Boogie Nights? So. Oh, I think he's in Magnolia, too. Um, but, you know, still quite a long time. Josh, I want to bring up two other things, okay? Um, yes. You're talking about longtime Anderson collaborators. Robert Elswit, who was a cinematographer, has done six PTA films, and he has an Oscar for uh, There Will Be Blood. So um, he's part of that kind of collective. Same way Scorsese works with a lot of the same crew members. And then, you know, Samuel L. Jackson now we know is either Nick Fury or big bombastic Samuel L. Jackson, but... Um, in the nineties, I think he did what, like four or five Spike Lee movies, four or five Tarantino movies or from the nineties to now, let's say five of each. And, um, you know, I recommend people go back. We've talked about do the right thing, Mo better blues, jungle fever. Some of his best work with Spike Lee, um, might be kind of under the radar, right? Yeah. And I think you're right that he, because he works so much he's kind of become this caricature and people hire him to just like do Samuel L. Jackson, but he's really scary. Like the Jimmy is like a genuinely menacing guy. He comes on screen and you're like, don't mess with this guy. He's dangerous. And that's, that's impressive. And this kind of big Samuel L. Jackson persona, I think Tarantino has gotten the best out of it in Pulp Fiction and Django. Um, you know, so he's always got the memes going. The memes are important. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I think he's got more in him. I want to see more in him of the range that made him what he was. Yeah, yeah. He does seem like maybe he's coasting a bit. I mean, and dude is in his, what, in his mid-70s or something at this point. I mean, he can coast if he wants to. But I, I think you're right that there could be something where he could really dig into something deeper uh, with the right material. That would be cool to see. I've got one other legacy thing. Uh, this was Paul Thomas Anderson's first, but it was also uh, John Bryan's first as composer, um, who went on to work with him on three other films, uh, well, two other films, three, including this. Uh, but also one of my favorite film music composers. I mean, I, I just absolutely love his stuff. Yeah, and what happened? What to other things has he done besides this? And not just P.T. Anderson, but other stuff. Yeah, he did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Sonetsky in New York with Charlie Kaufman and then uh, also I Heart Huckabees and uh, a couple others. He also produced a lot of artists. He did uh, Fiona Apple's albums, which I, I love her albums. She's so good. I, I know he worked with Kanye West, too, and some other artists. Well, P.T. Anderson and, you know, and Fiona Apple used to be an item. Right. Yeah, I was going to say what happened else. to his collaboration with P.T. Anderson, but maybe that's the answer to that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Now it's Johnny Greenwood instead, who also yeah. is, is extremely talented, of course. Yes, absolutely. So that is Hard Eight, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. 
Check us out on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on everything. GoForJason.com is somewhere in 2021. Who knows? Uh, we're at AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, where I actually do have a couple new things. My uh, once-a-year effort to update that website is happening right now, so check that out. Also, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And if you like us, we're on a lot of uh, Piecing It Togethers lately, Josh. Yeah, sure yeah. I mean, listen to it anyway, even if you don't like us. Although I don't know. No, why but you're mostly because you like us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you can check out the Patreon. We still have. Uh, one of our bonus episodes for You Only Live Twice, I think, is still available. But uh, what else is on the You Patreon? Only Live Twice. And that, that always gives Jason the chance to do that. So, But I think, I, Dave, I'm, you've had some good stuff there lately, right? Yeah, I'm always posting, uh, piecing it together episodes. As soon as they get recorded, they go right up there, even if they're not going to come out for a while onto the main feed. So uh, you can always get those early. And then I'm... Also posting commentary tracks for my albums on there. And uh, I also have two soundtracks I'll be putting on there in the next couple of months. Nice. And we'll probably get something of our own up there eventually again. So it's not just that one where Jason can sing every time. So yes. check that out as well. And Jason, what is coming up in our next episode? Josh, we are going to a documentary pick and we're going to the year 2003. Uh, now you see a lot of these type of documentaries following these socially awkward kids as they succeed or try to succeed in different ventures. But one of them that really started it was Spellbound, a delightful piece that we will talk about. So tune in next time for Spellbound. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.